You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 33, The Third Reich, Part 19, The Rhineland. This week, a big thank you goes out to Anita for the donation and to Don, Jackson, Jason, Scotty, and Ryan for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special ad-free versions of all of these episodes, plus special Patreon-only episodes released once a month. If that sounds interesting to you, head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more information. I would also like to send a special thanks to listener Hendrik from Germany who helped me out with some research for this episode uh, back in March of 2020. The mid-1930s would be a period where Germany would begin to shed many of the limitations placed upon it by the Treaty of Versailles, which had ended the First World War. By 1936, Germany had already announced that it was rearming and ignoring the military limitations included in the treaty. Reparations had also essentially ended a few years earlier. In March 1936, another important feature of the treaty would be discarded when, on March 7th, German troops entered the Rhineland. The Rhineland had been demilitarized in the Treaty of Versailles, with the German army forbidden from basing troops or building defenses in the region. This included a strip of land that was about 50 kilometers wide on the east bank of the Rhine River, which was considered incredibly important territory by the French military. The Rhine River presented something of an obstacle to any French attack into Germany and so the demilitarized zone was seen as a critical way in which the French army could gain an early advantage. It would allow French forces to hop the river and immediately threaten the important industrial resources of the Ruhr, and even if it was unlikely that the French army would be so aggressive in a conflict that they would launch such an attack right at the beginning. Just the ability of it to do so, if necessary, was critical to French relationships with Eastern European powers. If German troops were stationed in the Rhineland, and if they were allowed to build defenses, the entire situation in Europe would become much more precarious for France and its allies in the east. It would essentially remove the threat of a French attack in the west, and allow the Germans to focus first on affairs in eastern Europe, with little threat of French action. On the flip side, the German military saw the Rhineland as essential, and they wanted the area back in German hands as soon as possible. The fate of this piece of territory, the importance of which far exceeded its size in square kilometers, will be the topic for this episode. It would represent another point where another European war was very possible, although there were many reasons that such a conflict did not occur. 
While the German leaders contemplated moving into the Rhineland, there were many discussions about what the French would do. This is one of those situations where our evaluation of the correct course of action today can be very different than what it may have been at the time, because neither side had perfect information. There were two basic groups on the German side, those who advocated for caution due to concerns about a French military response, which probably would have ignited a European-wide war, with nations in the East joining with France, and those who advocated for an aggressive approach kind of countered this, out of the belief that the French would not risk such a conflict. One of the key members of this second group was German Foreign Minister Freiherr von Neurath. He based his beliefs on information that he was getting from German sources in France, which seemed to make it very clear that there was little desire within the French government to forcefully resist a German reoccupation of the Rhineland. He was able to have good information from Paris because the possibility of German troops coming back into the Rhineland was not a complete surprise, and it was being discussed as early as February in Germany. These rumors then got back to Paris, at which point discussions within the French government were initiated. Of the people relatively close to Hitler within the government, men like Goering and others within the inner circle that he often listened to or at least discussed things with, many were on the cautious side of of this decision. Then there would later be testimony at Nuremberg by Paul Otto Schmidt that Neurath was really the only one of Hitler's advisors advocating for the remilitarization of the Rhineland or, or the aggressive approach. Most of those who pushed for caution based their viewpoints strictly on the fear of a French military response. Hitler, always a fan of bold action, would make his decision on March 1st, and it would be to push forward with plans for a remilitarization action. The next day at 11 a.m., he would meet with the military leaders to inform them of this decision and that he wished to move troops into the area on March 7th. Simultaneously, Hitler would give a speech to the Reichstag stating what was happening. In this announcement, he would also declare that Germany was willing to enter negotiations, to re-enter the League of Nations, and also to begin discussions on a non-aggression treaty with France. These political olive branches were purely to try and dissuade any active response to the operation, and it's very unlikely that they would have been followed through on in any situation. After the instructions were given to the military, they put the plans in place, even though there was some hesitancy among the military leadership. They were still greatly concerned about what would happen if France really did want to defend the demilitarized zone by force, with there being no illusions about the state of the German military when compared with that of the French army. This hesitancy was reflected in the plans that were drawn up. It would involve not just official troops of the Wehrmacht, but also various paramilitary and semi-military troops that were already in the Rhineland. These forces had been built up over time with the understanding that eventually the operation would be launched and, and they would be ready when it happened. On March 7th, around midday, German troops approached the Hohenzollern Bridge in Cologne, at the same time that Hitler's speech was ongoing in front of the Reichstag. The operation was no secret in Cologne, and thousands would crowd near the bridge. Even while advancing, there was still a level of caution at this point. Only a few thousand troops would actually march deep into the Rhineland, and of the 30,000 soldiers that were part of the operation, most would stay on the east bank of the Rhine in defensive positions. Those units that were advancing were under orders to retreat immediately if they were met by any French military forces, and to be ready to start the retreat if the French government even simply announced that they would commit French troops. The German military really did not want to get into a fight here. 
For the people of the Rhineland, there was a mixture of joy and trepidation. Joy that German troops were once again moving into the area, and that French and Belgian security forces were being removed. But also, some concern about a possible French response. As with every other action of this type, the propaganda opportunities of the events were utilized to the maximum possible amount. There would be many pictures of cheering people welcoming the German troops back into the Rhineland, but there were also some reports that the photographs were totally staged. Newspapers were also used in this effort, with a headline from Aachen on March 9th stating, quote, German troops at the German Rhine again, endless cheering to the troops moving into the barracks. When it started to become clear that an immediate French response was not going to occur, the propaganda value of the operation, both domestically and abroad, was utilized as much as possible. Over in Paris, there was certainly a lot of discussion about the correct course of action. News would arrive in Paris in the morning, and for several hours a cabinet meeting would take place to discuss what the French response would be. I like this quote from what is now a pretty old source, the first capitulation, France and the Rhineland Crisis of 1936 by R.A.C. Parker, which was published way back in 1956, which is quite ancient at this point, but still does a good job of summarizing the problem. Quote, This was the time when a decision to act, if necessary alone, could most readily and appropriately have been made. It was not made, and thus this meeting was a decisive turning point. Until it took place, it seemed possible, even probable, that France would use force to push back the German advance. After it, each day and each hour that passed confirmed and made more and more irrevocable the failure to act. End quote. That's a very good summarization of what happens in France here. There were many considerations that were weighing on the minds of French leaders. The remilitarization was happening in the aftermath of the Abyssinian crisis, during which the Italians had invaded Ethiopia. This had created what might best be described as a crisis in the League of Nations, and especially for France and Britain. Public opinion in Britain pushed for British action against the Italians in the form of economic sanctions, if nothing else, while the French tried desperately to keep their two allies together and cooperative. French leaders considered both nations to be critical in any future war with Germany, indispensable allies who were both almost coming to blows over the status of a nation in Africa that France didn't really care about. And these efforts had strained Anglo-French relations, and at this point there were many in the French government that believed that France simply could not, under any circumstances, go to war or even risk a war without the full backing of London. This strained state of foreign affairs played into the decision on the Rhineland, making it seem less likely that the French government could count on the nations that they felt they needed should a war begin. However, even with this fact, the French political leaders were willing to act, but they were urged to be cautious by the French military. The French military was not in a good place in 1935, especially for what was being asked of it in the case of a response to German actions in the Rhineland. Over the previous five years, the French military budget had fallen by 17%, with the budget cuts being felt most sharply in the areas of equipment procurement and upgrades. Along with this, the French army was built and designed for a full-scale war. It was organized and structured so that, if it was needed, it could be mobilized in its entirety as quickly as possible. When this mobilization was ordered, units near the frontier would take up defensive positions while the rest of the army was mobilized and headed to the front. 
Many of the active duty troops were defensive troops used near the German border, which were positioned close to the front to provide instant defense of the French border from German incursions. This was, in general, completely acceptable given the French plan for a war. They were very concerned about a German attack into France, and so that caused their decision-making in the 1920s and 30s to provide the best ability to counter that attack. One of the outcomes of this uh, was the Maginot Line, which in my opinion gets a lot of undeserved criticism that I guarantee you we will talk about in a later episode. It was constructed based on the idea that the first priority of the French military was to stop a German attack into France, and once that was complete, then the French would consider offensive actions. French allies in the east were seen as diversionary forces that would hopefully draw German troops away from the attack on France. In essence, they believed that a future war would begin much like the last one, and they were prepared to meet it. What they were not prepared to do was to advance into the Rhineland. There is quite a gulf between what was required in the two scenarios. On one hand, every available man in France had to be mobilized and prepared for war. On the other, a much smaller number of soldiers had to be prepared for an advance of uncertain duration, distance, and with a huge unknown about what the German response would be. When the French cabinet asked the French military what the available options were, they responded that it was either to accept the German actions or order a full mobilization. Part of this was organizational inflexibility. This was a scenario that had just not been prepared and planned for. But part of it was also a general belief at the highest ranks of the French military that any skirmishes with the German army would inevitably lead to full-scale war, like there was no other option. And trying to do some kind of partial mobilization to advance into the Rhineland would compromise full mobilization if and when it was needed, and they believed it was always going to be needed. General Gamelin and Minister of War Morin would also make it clear that they did not believe any military response should be mounted without the full support of France's allies. There were also many problems with full mobilization, most importantly in terms of finances. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Obviously, in the case of a German invasion, money would not have been the primary factor driving decision-making there would have been larger concerns, like the Germans in invading France. 
But the Germans were not invading France, and so when Gamelin informed Prime Minister Serrault that the expected cost of a general mobilization was going to be around 30 million francs a day, which was about equivalent to a month's worth of a military budget, again every single day, there were concerns. These concerns just increased when considering the economic dislocation of so many millions of men being pulled away from their normal occupations. France had also clung to the gold standard during the Depression, which had insulated the country from its early effects, but had caused the economic stagnation and decline that other nations felt to last longer into the 1930s for France. In 1936, the economy was still sluggish, and there were still many problems for the government budget. It is possible that a mobilization would have resulted in a crisis both for the French treasury and for the French economy as a whole. All of this might have been overcome under different circumstances, but Prime Minister Soreau would later say, when these discussions were occurring with the military, that, quote, The least I can say is that neither on the side of the Minister of War nor on the side of his collaborators in the high command did I feel that elan, that tautening of the muscles, that combative feelings, that indescribable quality of energy and sturdiness that brings men to face to the front and go forward. With so much hesitancy on the French side, hours turned into days, and without French leadership and French action, the chances of anything happening at all rapidly diminished. The British government would also play an important role in French decision-making. Just to reiterate, the French leaders felt that it was essential that no matter what else happened, they had to stay on good terms with London, and over the course of the 1930s, they would make many sacrifices to hold on to that relationship. Unfortunately for the French leaders, the British government was not united behind the French actions. There would always be voices in London that blamed German actions on French refusals to negotiate other changes with Germany. It would also be much more challenging for the British government and the British public to be persuaded to commit to military action against Germany during this period. During February 1936, the British Foreign Office had informed the French that they did not consider the remilitarization of the Rhineland to be of great and vital interest to the British government. They would instead begin to try and push the French towards a proactive response, but not one of military confrontation, but instead political negotiations. Foreign Minister Eden would say at around this time that, quote, between military action on the one hand and friendly action on the other, There lies a policy of sulking and passive obstruction, and that is the policy that which the French government, in their weakness, will be inclined to have recourse, and out of which we shall have to persuade them. After the German troops were on the march, Eden and other representatives from London would meet with French and Belgian leaders. If the French had decided on military action on March the 9th, this would have been the moment that they would have used to to rally their allies to join them. Instead, the French delegation proposed economic and financial sanctions, with military force being used only as a last resort. Even sanctions were seen as too negative by the British government, and they would be rejected by the British cabinet unanimously. There was simply no support in London for any action that might push Europe closer to war, even if it presented a chance to cut off the growing power of Germany. At this point, there were greater concerns about what might happen in Germany if Europe went to war, especially what the result might be. Prime Minister Baldwin would say on March 11th that there was a good chance that even if the Western powers started a war, the French could certainly count and reach out to the Soviet Union. And if that happened, and if they were victorious, the only result would be Germany, quote, 
going Bolshevik. All of this combined to make support from London quite lacking, a consistent problem for the French during this period. This resulted in very little real action against what Germany was doing. This would be one of the reasons that in May the French government would fall and Leon Blum and the Popular Front, a socialist coalition, would come to power. The lack of decisive action from France would have many ramifications on the political environment of Europe. One of the most important impacts would be the views of other nations on France, and specifically those nations that had counted upon alliances with France as a part of their protection from a possibly resurgent Germany. One of those nations was Poland. Poland had long been seen as a key to French security, and dating back to the Polish victory in the Polish-Soviet War in the early 1920s, France had hoped that Poland would play a valuable role in any conflict with Germany. This resulted in France and Poland agreeing to an alliance in 1921 with a secret military agreement that both were bound to help the other should they be the victim of unprovoked aggression. This was weakened at Locarno, which bound the French to refer any issues to the League of Nations before taking any action against Germany, which would delay a French response if Germany decided to invade Poland. This would be the first but not the last reason that Franco-Polish relations would erode between the signing of Locarno in 1925 and the remilitarization of the Rhineland in 1936. After about 1934, France began to pursue much closer relations with the Soviet Union, which the Poles were never going to be a fan of, given the incredibly antagonistic relationship between the two nations in the relatively recent past. The Poles had fought a war of national survival against the Soviets in the years after the First World War, and so it was difficult for the two nations to work together in any meaningful way. Marshal Pilsudski would also die in 1935, a leader during the early years of Polish independence. He had also been a supporter of closer relations with France and had remained an influential figure in Polish politics. Before March 1936, the Polish position was that they would continue to honor their commitment to help France should it be invaded, but they refused to provide a specific commitment on what should happen if the Rhineland was occupied and they also refused to adapt their position in any way to the changes in France's views and relationships with the Soviet Union. They would also use the importance that France placed on relations with Poland as a bargaining chip to try and get more assistance with the continuing Polish rearmament program. The Polish ambassador in Paris, Alfred Czaplowski, would write, quote, In the long run, it will be difficult for us to maintain our present method of general declaration of Polish fidelity to the alliance with France, while avoiding all conversations designed to give practical effect to the alliance in the event of German aggression in any part of Europe. The necessity for such conversations will be increasingly pressed upon us by the French in response to our suggestions as to the necessity of some form or other of a credit arrangement for the purpose of rearmament. This did not prevent the two countries from discussing possible actions when German troops moved into the Rhineland. There were many discussions, and the Polish officials did encourage French actions under the assumption that the French would not commit to anything without wider Allied support. At the same time, there was a general mistrust in Warsaw about French commitment to actually, you know, bringing the situation to a conclusion. It was also made very clear that Poland did not consider the remilitarization grounds for an instant commitment of Poland to war. The Rhineland was not France. When it very quickly became clear that France was not going to take quick and decisive action, Polish leaders took the only position they thought was available to them and began to bolster relations with Germany. This was all that they felt they could do, 
With Germany once again in possession of the Rhineland, the chances of a successful French attack into Germany, should it be required, became more and more uncertain every day. All of the eastern powers that had previously aligned themselves with France were concerned about this development, and several began to reconsider their arrangements. If they could not count on France to take action when it was required, why would they tie themselves to France at all? Even if France wanted to be more aggressive in the future, what good would it do after the Germans began constructing defenses? After the war, the Kachik thrown at the French, both from army and political perspectives, was vicious. Everyone from the post-war parliamentary committee to Winston Churchill would blame the French army and the French government for throwing away what they saw as the last chance to stop Hitler before the war. Those criticisms are, of course, all in retrospect, with the benefit of knowing what would happen next. In 1936, the French were forced into a position of leadership when there were no good options. They could either accept the growing strength of Germany and hope for a better opportunity in the future, or they could move forward into war with uncertain allies and unclear objectives. That they chose the former and to delay the possible nightmare of war is somewhat understandable, and only becomes easy to criticize when we know today that the nightmare happens anyway. While Germany's actions in the Rhineland had very negative effects on France's prestige and its overall military situation, in Germany it was exactly the opposite. The move into the Rhineland was a bold move by Hitler and those supporting him. It was a risk, for all the reasons that others within the government did not want to do it. If France had decided to respond with military force and move against Germany, there was realistically nothing that Germany could have done to stop them. Hitler himself would say, quote, Had the French then marched into the Rhineland, we would have had to withdraw again with our tails between our legs. The military force at our disposal would not have sufficed even for limited resistance. End quote. The success of the operation bolstered Hitler's support within Germany to even greater heights, and another election would be called so that the propaganda value of another vote, with massive margins for the Nazi party, could be capitalized on. It also boosted Hitler's belief in his own judgment, and served to further prejudice him against the more cautious advice he received from his advisors and from the military. In what would become the theme of the years before the start of the war, in the Rhineland, Hitler boldly just went for it and threw caution to the wind, and it worked. It was something that the other nations in Europe, with their hesitancy to push towards open conflict and their concern for domestic politics and economics, simply were not ready to react to. This allowed Hitler's bold strategy to work in March 1936 in the Rhineland, just like it had earlier worked with the announcement of rearmament and the exit from the League of Nations. There would be similar victories in the years that followed. Every time a roll of the dice that counted on all those around Germany to avoid war, avoid the nightmare of war for just another day. When looking back at the political career of Adolf Hitler and the creation of the Nazi party, these risks were being taken all the time. Sometimes they failed spectacularly, like in the beer hall in Munich. But so often, and at least enough of the time, through luck, skill, or, or mistakes of others, they ended up paying off. Hitler's insistence that the party only enter the government with him as chancellor, which brought it close to ruin, worked out in the end. The absolute commitment to the gold standard, which came so close to breaking the German economy, worked out in the end. The announcement of the German rearmament program and the expansion of the military did not provoke the military response or the economic sanctions from other nations that it could have, which meant it worked out in the end. 
the move into the Rhineland, which risks a military confrontation with France, worked out in the end. In each of these cases, there was, there was certainly skill involved, primarily political skill, of Hitler and, and those around him that properly evaluated the possible outcomes. There were mistakes by others, whether they were Hitler's domestic political opponents or foreign leaders. There was also no small uh, amount of luck, which is essentially impossible to quantify. Luck around guessing the decision that would be made by others, and luck of picking the right moment to risk it big, <laughs> you know, in these instances. And with each success, Hitler's belief in his own ability to judge the proper amount of bold action increased. And these successes would continue after 1936. And in each case, the three reasons for earlier successes, that skill, the luck, and then the mistakes of others, would still come into play. But eventually, skill would not be enough. Everybody else would stop making mistakes, and the German luck would run out. And in those moments, it would not work out in the end. 